You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Today is an important day for Ukraine, as the country marks its 31st anniversary of independence from Soviet rule. It is also six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. On this important anniversary, Aspie's Executive Director, Justin Bassi, speaks to Ukraine's Ambassador to Australia, Vasil Muroshnichenko, about the current situation in the conflict, international support for Ukraine, and the country's successes in the cyber domain. They also discuss Russia's ambitions and its progress in achieving these goals, as well as Ukraine's economic situation. Well, it's a pleasure to be joined by my good friend, Ukraine's Ambassador to Australia, Vasil Muroshnichenko. Vassal, thanks so much for joining us on Aspie's podcast. The release of this podcast, 24 August, marks six months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Most military analysts predicted the war would be over within weeks. It is to the credit of the Ukrainian people, its leader, President Zelensky, referred to by many as Turchillian, the support from around the world, and other senior officials, like yourself, that global and domestic pressures in other countries have not resulted in fatigue or distraction from the war. The war is clearly existential for Ukraine, vital for Europe, which can no longer refer to itself as post-war Europe, and significant for the United States. And while we are geographically distant, it resonates strongly in Australia. Australians see it as an illegal war by a large country trying to impose its will on a smaller country. Of course, it is an authoritarian state trying to coerce and destroy a democratic state, But Australians don't just see this as authoritarian versus democratic. It is viewed as right versus wrong. It's a breach of international rules and of the stability and certainty we should all take for granted, but no, we cannot. And Australians have accepted the fact that if we sat idly by while a sovereign state was invaded and taken over, it could have consequences for our region, which underscores the urgency of countries standing together. Vassal, can I start by asking for your assessment on where things are at six months into the war, militarily, symbolically, and psychologically? Look, it's it's a tough battle, and uh, it's been going on for six months now. When the war started, many analysts said that Ukraine wouldn't last longer than three days. And many analysts throughout the world who were well-informed, uh, who had the intelligence, but uh, many of them have got it wrong. It's interesting to go back in the retrospect and analyze why they were wrong. Why everybody looked at Vladimir Putin as a rational player, and it turned out he's irrational. So what's the role of irrational players? And is the world ready to embrace irrational behavior? Is Australia ready to embrace irrational behavior? What if it happens next door? And this is an interesting um, lesson for everybody to see that global leaders or authoritarian leaders can make a calculated strike and step forward. For them, it's totally rational. But for the rest, it did make sense. But Putin did invade Ukraine. He invaded Ukraine eight years ago. He mounted another major uh, attack uh, six months ago. Uh, Currently, 20% of Ukraine's territory is under the Russian occupation. There is a battlefield going on in the south, in the east, in the southeast, uh, the, actually, the battlefield line we've recently calculated is as long as the road from Kiev to The Hague. And we'd really like for Vladimir Putin to take that road straight to The Hague from Ukraine. And we'll make everything possible 
so that he follows the route and he must be tried in and in, in the International Court of Justice for the war crimes, for the crimes against humanity, for inciting hatred, uh, for looting billions of dollars from the people of Russia, depriving Russian people of the proper future, uh, depriving Russians of their freedoms, human rights, and do, doing such a huge damage to the reputation of Russia which is currently toxic. Everything Russian is toxic. Russian culture is toxic. Russian poets are toxic. Russian people are toxic. And that took Vladimir Putin just six months to achieve that. How is he going to be remembered? And that's a very interesting thing for us to ponder over, right? Where is Ukraine at that? Look, it's difficult for us. We are on counteroffensive in the South. We're trying to recapture more territory in Kherson. Kherson region is under the Russian occupation. It's a very strategic region for us because this is where uh, we have um, some major grain ports and we use Dnieper River as a um, transporting route for our grain. And Ukraine is number four in the world in terms of the wheat export and, some, and number one in the world in terms of sunflower export. We use river transport to deliver commodities uh, to the Black Sea ports, including many in the Kherson region, because this is where the Dnipro River flows into the Black Sea. So having Russians occupying that region is strategic for us. We need to uh, get rid of the R Russians out there to make an easy flow for our goods. Of course, we have other ports in Odessa and Pivdenny, and uh, the ports which are currently being used uh, that we have finally managed to unlock um, the blockade several weeks ago. But let me tell you, Justin, it's just a trickle because we really need to get to the level of 5 million tons of grain per month. Uh, and the current numbers we have are really uh, very small. Ukraine last year had a record-breaking harvest of 107 million tons of grain. Domestically, we only need 3 million. The rest we export. We export to the Horn of Africa. We export to the Middle East. We export to other African countries, which are now starving. And actually, the unfolding food crisis was, is also part of this war that Russia is waging against the free world. Because Russians are using different ways how to blackmail and put pressure uh, on the world to give up on Ukraine. Food crisis is one of those. Another one is actually blackmailing the Europeans with the supply of gas and creating actually an energy glut. And energy glut created this, uh, the surging prices for oil and gas for coal, for other commodities. And we see as the quality of life has deteriorated throughout the world, including here in the Indo-Pacific. So look, where we are now, Ukrainians are united. Uh, we've never been united as much as we are today. What we need to credit Putin with is actually the creation of a true political nation. We are you know, all-inclusive, Russian-speaking, Ukrainian-speaking, Jews, Muslims, Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants, all together are now united to defeat Vladimir Putin and his troops in Ukraine. And we've never seen such unity. And many people believe that we got our independence in 1991 too easy. We didn't have to fight for it. And in 2014, when Russians invaded, we started fighting for it. But the battles we go through now are fundamental in terms of shaping us as Ukrainians. Just like Anzac, in your experience, of sending troops to, to fight in the First World War, the tragic losses at Gallipoli. They have shaped Australians and New Zealanders as 
as a nation, and that actually has expedited your aspiration for independence. Just for us now, which we've already had independence, but going through this struggle has helped us shape us as as Ukrainians. And this is just phenomenal what has happened. We have farmers are still in tractors. People with disabilities are making Molotov cocktails. I've never seen such a unity in my life. Putin has united Ukraine uh, is, uh, is an excellent description, uh, Vassal. Uh, his, uh, his war has also united many other countries around the world in support of Ukraine. As you mentioned, there's an unfolding food crisis. There are rising food prices, energy prices around the world. It is definitely the case that Putin is putting pressure both on the Ukrainian people uh, as well as those who are supporting Ukraine from around the world. So there have been numerous momentum shifts during the war. You talk about the counteroffensive that is uh, that we've seen most recently and it suggests that uh, it is happening in Ukraine's favour uh, and that in particular the technological advantages now seem to be going towards Ukraine. So where do you see Russia itself at? in terms of having to reset its goals? Where do you see its views on achieving its goals? Russia has had this evolving uh, military targets. And uh, initially, they really did try to capture Kiev. They've spent special services um, units to capture and kill the president in uh, early March. And we've been able to fend it off and actually eliminate all of those who are sent on that mission. We've been able to defend Ukraine when the Russian troops came from the north. Of course, through the tragic experiences of what Ukrainian civilians had to go through in Bucha, Irpin, in other parts of, of Chernihiv and other places, um, that was just horrendous. But at the same time, Russians done it on purpose. If you ask me why they did it, there was a mission, there was a purpose. And the purpose was to terrorize Ukrainians, to force them to quit uh, resisting. And even the, 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 the crimes that Russians are perpetrating against uh, the prisoners of war have also been the same intention. They want to scare the Ukrainian defense forces. They want to intimidate them as part of the psychological operations which Russians are um, getting involved into. Look, in terms of where we are, uh, we have been able to secure support from our allies, including from Australia, for which we are very thankful. When uh, Prime Minister Badlanizi went to Kyiv, Zelensky, President Zelensky could thank him for that support. It includes over $400 million in military assistance, which was initially um, provided by the Liberal government. And then later on, it was picked up by the Labour government. And, um, and I'm lucky here as a wartime ambassador to have bipartisan support. Uh, so I'm, I'm continuing engaging across the aisle working with politicians from from different sides uh, because uh, the war in Ukraine is not a political issue. It's not like, it's not a matter of opinion. It's definitely black and and, and white. It's pretty clear uh, who's Goliath and who's David and why should we support David in this fight for for the right thing. We benefited a great deal from the Bushmasters. Um, So far, Australia has committed 60 of those. Um, latest information I have, the initial batch of 20 was delivered a long time ago. We now, another 14 have been recently delivered. We are still waiting for the rest. These armored personnel carriers and vehicles have helped um, save many lives of the Ukrainian soldiers who were transported to the battlefields back and forth. 
we've received some of the M113's um, armored personnel carriers, which we also make uh, good use of. All artillery was essential. We got six pieces of 777 howitzers. Um, we've also received similar guns from the U.S. and Britain. And artillery is actually essential for us to be able to go on counteroffensive. But what is also more important is, of course, long-range missiles. In a way, we could we could change the dynamics uh, and with the use of the American HIMARS uh, because it's being very precise, precise more long-range. We've been able to, to hit uh, some of the stockpiles to undermine the logistical supplies for the Russians. And as you can see, we've been even able to hit the targets in Crimea. We still don't know, to be frank, I don't know how we did it. Uh, but apparently we did it somehow, been able to destroy some of the Russian military aircraft in Sake and other places. So we take it to a new level. Uh, of course, the problem is that we outnumbered, we are outgunned. For every Ukrainian shell, Russians send 10 shells. Uh, they have more ammunition than we do. So it's important that Ukraine gets all the ammunition, all the guns we need to be able to keep on fighting. And I think Ukrainian armed forces have demonstrated that we are capable of fighting. We get the training, we get the guns, we get tanks, we get jets. And this is how we can change uh, the war. And I'm convinced we can win a conventional war. I'm convinced of that. Of course, it's now a war of attrition. And in war attrition, who's going to last longer? Apparently, Ukrainian resilience is out there. Uh, it's, it's because it's an existential fight for us. If Russians stop fighting at the end of the war, if we stop fighting at the end of, at the end of Ukraine. Uh, however, Russia has more troops, has more ammunition, more guns, modern weapons, long-range missiles, and most importantly, Russia has nuclear weapons, which we don't. There's no doubt that uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people have shown extreme resilience, which is uh, to, uh, to your credit. Uh, support, though, is absolutely mandatory. You mentioned the range of support that you have uh, got, including from Australia. Politico recently put out a piece that said, uh, and I quote, Europe's six largest countries offered Ukraine no new bilateral military commitments in July. There are also reports of European military assistance commitments for Ukraine being on a downward trend since the end of April. In contrast, the US recently announced another $775 million in military assistance for Ukraine. Do you have any concerns uh, around ongoing and lasting European support, or is it just a periodic uh, issue uh, that we see here? And are you concerned by the disproportionate numbers that we see in terms of the US support versus broader European support? It's very difficult for me to provide um, an objective assessment out of Australia on what's going on in Europe with, uh, with, with their military uh, assistance to Ukraine. Um, and uh, definitely we need to have a steady supply of weapons and guns and, and, and equipment into Ukraine. It doesn't need to be explained why, but uh, at the same time, of course, I'm concerned when I hear reports like that. And therefore, uh, it's extremely important for Ukraine to continue engaging with the Allies to be engaging uh, with uh, U.S. allies in Europe, which includes all NATO member states. Now that Sweden and Finland are joining NATO, it's actually going to, a lot of things can well change as well. And um, look, uh, and it's also important for Australia to continue supporting Ukraine because it's definitely in the interest of Australia 
to support Ukraine. By the way, I'm also covering now New Zealand. So I'm non-resident ambassador to New Zealand. I, I presented my credentials the other week. So I have to be mentioning New Zealand as well. Of course. Uh, so I do hope we'll get the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern to visit Ukraine soon because uh, that would be great for her to go and see the president and he would be delighted to welcome her as well. You have a lot of support across both Australia and New Zealand. You mentioned the need and desire for ongoing Australian support. Australia is a major non-NATO supplier of military assistance. Uh, in some reports, uh, the largest non-NATO supplier of military assistance to Ukraine. Last Friday, it was announced that Australia would provide Ukraine with 300 Defentex D-40 kamikaze drones. Defentex, for those listeners who are not aware, is a defence technology company with around 60 staff and an additional 120 staff in research institutions. It's a quality outfit of which Australians should be very proud. The Defentex D-40 has a maximum flight range of 20 kilometres and can be launched both manually and with a 40 millimetre grenade launcher. It is designed to destroy tanks, manpower and ammunition depots. So it would seem a very useful capability. Did Ukraine specifically ask for this type of technology? And uh, is this the type of technology and capability that you're asking more of from Australia and, of course, New Zealand? Yes, absolutely. This this kind of uh, weapons, this is what we need because these are modern. Uh, they, they, these are drones, basically fighting drones. We can inflict damage remotely and thus save lives of our personnel. Uh, and um, since I've arrived here uh, in Australia at the end of March, as you know, we don't have a defense attaché here. So I've been a defense attaché here for almost five months now. And uh, I my meetings at, I have more meetings at the DOD than I have, more, than I have at DFAT. Uh, and uh, I've also been able to explore the defense industry of Australia. Uh, I've traveled to Brisbane, to Adelaide, to Melbourne, to Sydney, uh, and Canberra here as well, which has a vibrant defense industry. So I have met many companies which are producing some um, uh, modern warfare equipment and, uh, and, and kit. And, and drones are actually some of the best uh, are produced here, both reconnaissance drones, but also fighting drones, including Defentex. Uh, I've met their CEO pretty much initially when, when, when I came here in April. And uh, I was really amazed by what they've shown to me. And of course, uh, we, I passed it over to my people, to my government back in Ukraine, and everybody was very keen to get some of those. So I'm very happy to hear that they are being dispatched to Ukraine as we speak here. But also there are some other good companies. Like for instance, I just got back from Adelaide uh, on Sunday and uh, I, I met six defense industry companies in Adelaide on Thursday and Friday. Uh, I'll mention several. One is called Kodan. It's telecommunications equipment. They make some of the best military-grade radios. And there is also a company called MineLab, uh, which is making equipment to detect mines and actually mines which have no metal parts, which are most difficult to detect. And they have some really good uh, mine sweepers, uh, which is amazing. I hope we'll be able to to get some of those and um, we'll make a request. So we already made actually a request to the Australian government to see if they can procure some of those for us. But there is also like open source intelligence. There are companies which are making passive radars. Uh, there's one specific company which I was very amazed. Uh, Ex-military people created this passive radars. Very small, mobile. You, you can set it up in any spot, but then you can see, uh, you know, Russian uh, helicopters or whatnot. I mean, you can you can really detect a great deal of stuff, and you're invisible for the enemy. And it's very mobile. You just carry it in your backpack. You erect it, and you are out there 
you can you can you can see what's going on in the environment and have uh, uh, good information on the situation on the ground. Uh, I, I've been to I've engaged a lot with Starless here. I've been to Bendigo to their production facility. Uh, I met a company called Naya in in, in Brisbane. There is a new startup called uh, Gartech. Amazing stuff what they, these guys are doing. Uh, check it out what what they make, and uh, I'm happy we're getting some of their stuff. Uh, this is really fantastic. Of you know, defense industry, what you you are producing, and I think Australian government should invest more in, in defense industry. Um, it's, I'm not saying that because uh, because look, uh, we you need to need for instance, uh, you don't have the stockpiles of 155 ammunition here. Your stocks are very limited. I'll just give you one example. Australia uses up to 15,000 uh, rounds of, of 155 millimeter um, shells per year in training. This is what Ukraine spends in three days. Globally, there is a huge shortage of this uh, of, of, of the shells. They just don't exist anymore. Like Korea got them, but they wouldn't sell to anybody. America is keeping the stockpiles for themselves. You got a small stock here, but look, you provided some to Ukraine, but our needs are so huge that all of a sudden everybody realized, look, who's going to produce them? So it's important that Australia develops this capability. And I know that they're working on this uh, domestically. And there are two major companies, I think Naya and, and Talis, they, they have the capability to actually roll out the production, but it's not that fast. And uh, we would be interested in buying that, uh, whatever they're going to make. That I, we need them produced it yesterday, uh, not tomorrow, right? Because we need it now. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Investment in defence, defence industry, defence technology and capability is is vital. Uh, you mentioned a number of great Australian companies, uh, from uh, small and growing companies like Niowa up in uh, Queensland uh, to uh, the uh, the big uh, global companies uh, like Talus. Those. Companies, small, medium, primes, governments around the world are all definitely learning lessons out of the Russian war. Uh, and it was noticeable that the announced Defence Strategic Review, the review announced by the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, had a time frame centred around the next 10 years, not the usual Defence Review looking at 20, 30 years into the future. Uh, so uh, there's no doubt that there are a number of lessons that will be learned quickly uh, from what we are seeing um, out of the Russian war. As well as being six months since Russia invaded, the 24th of August is also Ukraine's 31st independence anniversary. There was an announcement overnight that Kyiv has banned public celebrations this week that would mark the occasion, with President Zelensky citing that Moscow could try something particularly ugly in the run-up to the anniversary. This obviously shows concern about Russia escalating its campaign, including in relation to civilians. What should we expect from Russia over the next few weeks? We can expect anything from Russia, um, especially now that we are celebrating. You know, when Russians uh, invaded Ukraine, they wanted to run a military parade on 9th of May, which is kind of a sacred holiday and day for many people uh, in Ukraine and Russia as well, because we celebrate uh, how we defeated Nazi Germany. Uh, and they wanted to run a military parade in Kiev. So this time, tomorrow, uh, on the 24th of August, uh, Ukraine is hosting a parade of the destroyed military uh, equipment and tanks. 
you can you can Google it now and see all these pictures of those Russian tanks that we've been able to destroy. This is something Russians do not like. They get rattled and uh, they may actually retaliate in, in a very nasty way. Uh, so it's important we don't congregate in large numbers anywhere in any big city of Ukraine and try to stay away from the main kind of squares. Uh, but also another thing which is very irritating to Vladimir Putin's actual Crimean platform. And the conference is hosted by the president of Ukraine on the 23rd uh, of August. And it was originally launched last year. It's a big political conference. And uh, the goal of the conference is to draw attention to Crimean Peninsula, which was stolen by Russia in 2014. And uh, uh, the conference is taking place uh, today as we speak, recording this podcast. Uh, We will have uh, the uh, Senator Penny Wong, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, She will address the participants of the conference. Also, we'll have Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand, who also will address the participants of the conference. And this is very important because it's at the top level. It's an online conference. It it will have many different other prime ministers and, and presidents who are participating uh, why it's so important? It's important because the world has to send a message to Russia that Crimea is Ukraine. It's only when we restore Ukraine's full sovereignty we'll be able to come down to a table with Russia to negotiate some sort of arrangement. It's only when we free our land and get the control of our border, including Crimea. Crimea, by the way, is a place where indigenous people of Ukraine live. These are Crimean Tatars. They are Muslim. They are Turkish background. In 1944, Joseph Stalin forcefully deported all these people to Central Asia. Many of them died on their way. They could only come back when Ukraine became independent in 1991. And Ukraine welcomed those indigenous people to Crimea, to their land. It's about 350,000 of those people. Now they are under heavy persecution by Russians. Many of them are political prisoners in, in the Russian jails. Some got abducted, killed, murdered, uh, or disappeared, and nobody knows where they are. The leadership of Crimean terrorists uh, is in Kiev. They, they are banned from, from visiting Crimea. Uh, but we have many members of Crimean terrorists, uh, people of Crimean ter- origin, uh, who are in the parliament. Uh, who, for, by the way, first deputy minister of uh, foreign affairs, Amina Jappar, she's, she's, she's Crimean terror. Um, many prominent leaders, business people as well, and they are all fighting there to liberate Crimean Tatars. And I think it really fo- goes really well with, with Australian and New Zealand indigenous foreign policy. You've had your own difficult relations with the indigenous people of Australia. And for Crimean Tatars who've suffered so much in the 20th century, they've been able to come back only now when Ukraine became independent. So in 2014, when Russians occupied Crimea, they had to relieve their you know, parents and ancestors gone through in 1944. And this is just mind-blowing if you just realize what it is. You know, in that time, Russians came and occupied their houses while they were, you know, put in, in, in trains and sent off to, to Uzbekistan in, in the middle of the winter. And, uh, and these people, you know, they have a very vibrant culture, very sophisticated culture, singing, uh, pottery, uh, paintings, um, and, uh, and really, they've been shaping up uh, Ukrainian identity to a great extent. We now celebrate Crimean Tatars as much as we celebrate Ukraine because we're part of this political, all-inclusive nation. And uh, we do have to liberate those people. And, and, and you know, people of Crimea, like Ukrainians in Crimea, have no prospect of any good future in Russia. 
because with Russia, there is nothing. It's just a military base. With Ukraine, Crimea will become part of the European Union, which will unlock funding, which will unlock investments into its infrastructure. And Crimea is a beautiful spot. And Yalta is like Côte d'Azur of, of Ukraine. And um, and we could develop the resorts. We could develop infrastructure. We could uh, bring investments. And this is what Crimea needs for development. There is no development with Russia. The, the, se- the second uh, Crimea platform uh, summit, as you said, uh, is on later uh, tonight. It is uh, excellent that you have support from all around the world. Uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong providing a uh, presentation to the summit is, is excellent. As you said, both Foreign Minister Wong and New Zealand's Foreign Minister Mahuta, uh, they do look at uh, First Nations foreign policy. They take it very seriously. I know the work of the team here in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, a, uh, they spend a lot of time uh, on it uh, and it resonates uh, with many countries around the world. It's also the summit, uh, Basil, is also a reminder, as, as you always remind me when we talk, that uh, while the uh, most recent invasion started uh, was six months ago, uh, that the war has been going on for the Ukrainian people for a long time uh, and uh, it is always worth remembering uh, the occupation of Crimea in 2014, as it is the downing of MH17. Uh, there are many actions uh, that the world uh, needs to continue holding uh, Russia to account. Can I ask, we have, we have seen very recently the death of Alexander Dugan's uh, daughter in a car bombing. Uh, has that had any bearing on the cancellation of uh, the Independence Day celebrations at Kiev? Uh, I note has denied responsibility, uh, while Russia's FSB security service has claimed that uh, the attack was carried out by a Ukrainian woman. Uh, Is there uh, a concern uh, that uh, Russia may retaliate? uh, And is that any, does that any bearing on uh, the cancellation of the celebrations? I've read a lot of this in the, in the media about this, but at the end of the day, Russia would probably want to retaliate for the destroyed military aircraft in Saki as much as they want to retaliate for Dugin's daughter. And uh, it's important for our audience to understand who is uh, Dr. Dugin. And Dr. Dugin is uh, the author of the Eurasian kind of idea of about the supremacy of the Orthodox Russian uh, nation, uh, which is very racial, imperialistic, chauvinistic, just the way the Russians are, um, to be frank. And... Uh, He's been instrumental in probably shaping some of the ideas that Vladimir Putin had anyways. And uh, he's kind of became a mouthpiece of of, of this uh, Russian chauvinism in the world. And his daughter just followed the suit. And uh, in a way, Russians have made a stake on her. She's just um, good looking, uh, smart, 30 years old. And she became sort of a propagandist uh, of, of Russia, just inciting hatred against Ukrainians, uh, being on television. And she was just... Um, Russian FSB and all the intelligence agencies just figured that she's a much better uh, picture of, of what they want to convey in terms of reaching out to the audience uh, because her audience was much younger than that of his her father. Who killed her? I have no idea. Russians are really good at killing their own people for different purposes. They've blown up buildings uh in 1999 to justify the second Chechen war and allegedly done by FSB. And some believe that that's in fact what happened and Putin was behind that whole idea to blow up civilians in the buildings out there to be able to justify the full-fledged invasion of Chechnya and just killing of, of many people there. So what happened in, in there? Uh, we'll, we'll maybe find out one day. Uh, 
Uh, but what is important is that people like that get eliminated um, uh, on the regular basis. And look, it's a war. Uh, and as you remember, when the genocide in uh, Rwanda was, was was prosecuted, those were the two radio stations, right? Or there was one major radio station which was behind uh, all the massacre of, of the people, the Houthi and Tutsi, right? When they were killing each other, that they were prosecuted. There was a tribunal specifically on those voices. So one day we'll, we'll prosecute all those propagandists from Russia just the way it was done in Rwanda, the way it was done during the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal. And because uh, what's the reason of why Russians are, are doing what they are doing in Ukraine? More, more and more countries are sanctioning not just those carrying out the military side of the war, but uh, those advocating, and as you say, the propagandists um, are featuring in, uh, in more and more countries' uh, sanctions. Beyond the military side of the war uh, vessel, the lack of attention to the cyber domain has been quite a feature. Uh, too often cyber has been viewed as not playing a role in the war at all. Uh, the head of the UK's GCHQ, Sir Jeremy Fleming, wrote recently in The Economist that, uh, I quote, Ukraine has proved itself to be an extremely effective cyber defender. As we have witnessed heroic defence by Ukraine's military, online we've arguably seen the most effective defensive cyber activity in history. What factors have contributed to Ukraine's success in the cyber domain? Is it that Ukraine, unlike the rest of the world, has known that it's been in conflict for many, many years, not just the last six months? And what should the rest of the world be learning about Ukraine's cyber resilience? Apparently, there will be so much Ukraine will be able to share with Australia and the world about what we've done and how we've actually gone through that. I think this is a great deal to study in terms of how this war has been unfolding and what we've done on the military side, but also what we've done on counter-cyber side. I'm not an expert, uh, to be frank, uh, to provide a more elaborate comment, but my understanding is the following. Ukraine is known for its software engineers, so our cyber capabilities were pretty advanced uh, already. And uh, I understand Ukraine has been able to mobilize global support, including in the dark web, to help Ukraine, and that actually has, uh, which helped Ukraine mount a major counteroffensive on Russia, and um, that's also a, a lesson to learn. And uh, we've been able to to use that uh, for uh, for basically purposes of attack defense as well. But also, like if you look at blockchain, for instance, uh, Ukraine has been raising millions and millions of dollars in the cryptocurrency world which is still unknown to many, but it's a huge multi-billion dollar kind of sector. And um, so we've been very good at actually tapping into the most modern uh, sectors uh, to mobilize the support and um, hence all this resilience, right? Not many military analysts were talking about uh, going into the war, talking about the use of or the impact of non-state actors uh, on cyberspace during the war. So it's definitely been a uh, an innovation the first time we've seen in such a conflict that uh, not just state-on-state, state, militarily state-on-state uh, state, uh, in cyberspace, we're seeing how non-state actors are coming together, choosing sides. Uh, and as you say, Ukraine's use of technology has been a part of uh, its resilience uh, and uh, 
to date success in holding uh, Russia back. We know that a, a country can't sustain that military side of the war without a functioning economy, Vassal. So how is Ukraine's economy going with parts of the country occupied, as you said, around 20%? There are severe disruptions to the country production and export capacity. How is Ukraine keeping its industry and economy going? What more can other countries, your partners, uh, do to ensure that uh, there is a viable economy that helps the military side continue? It's very difficult for Ukraine because 70% of, of Ukraine's export goes from the Black Sea ports as well as imports for that matter as well. So we've been paralyzed for six months now. And uh, the export of grains as of several weeks ago is just um, a trickle and we need it at bigger volume. And we also need to export our steel and steel products, uh, many other uh, commodities which we produce and our economy depends on them. Uh, so in this respect, Russia has been able to sell their gas, their oil, their coal uh, and grain as well at a higher prices, because since the prices for commodities have gone up, they've been able actually to make more money uh, out of that. And uh, they've been putting that money into the military to kill the Ukrainians. And we as a country is kind of uh, in a very difficult situation because we already have a new harvest coming and uh, we don't have any space to store it because all our storage facilities are packed with a yield from last year. And uh, while people in the Horn of Africa are starving, we, we can't send it over to, the, to those countries in Africa to relieve the pain. You see, it's, it's going to make it very difficult. But also, we've tried to can find new ways of how we can logistically uh, work and, and go through Gdansk uh, port in Poland or Klaipeda and Lithuania and, and, and use a railway too much as you can. But look, with the volumes of agriculture commodities Ukraine is producing, our roads, our railways are not equipped for that for those amounts. They're just so huge. They can only be transported by ship. People just don't realize how many trucks you need of, of grain to actually load into one Panamax, which is kind of one of these smaller ships of 70,000 tons of grain. And uh, But still, this is just the volumes are so big. Uh, so And for us, it's, it's essential that we are able to export. So I think in a way forward, we need to actually get get rid of the Black Sea Navy, uh, Russian Black Sea uh, Navy there. So we need to drown all those ships because for us, um, it's only security we can have in the Black Sea when the Black Sea um, Navy does not exist anymore, to be frank. And that's the only way forward. So uh, our success sinking Moskva uh, cruiser uh, was a good inspiration, and we will continue hitting the, the targets as much as we can. Uh, because at the end of the day, for us, Black Sea is essential and instrumental uh, for our economy. Uh, so, yes, uh, look, but we also have very diversified software engineers and IT tech industry. By the way, it's a low-hanging fruit. So many people in Australia ask me, "What can? how can we help Ukraine? I say, buy more from Ukraine, not necessarily of goods, but buy more services, software engineers, marketing, design. And uh, you can do it remotely, and uh, people will get paid for those services in Ukraine, and their families will benefit. This is how you can make a contribution to help Ukraine. Vessel, finally, six months in. An impossible question, how long do you think the war might last? That's a question I get all the time. I don't have an answer, Justin. Uh, I wish it ended today or tomorrow, but it doesn't look like it's going to end that soon. Russians thought that it would be a quick war, right? It's not. So a lot will depend on our allies. 
on countries like Australia, on the US, on our NATO allies and other partners that we have, how long it's going to last. But what is important is that we need to get more military assistance. Uh, we need it all. We need it now. The longer we wait, the more Ukrainians will get killed, more people will get murdered, raped, and um, it needs to be stopped. We can't have this scale of war in the middle of Europe. The world cannot afford it. So as you rightly pointed out, Europe can no longer say about post-war period because the scale of this war is actually the scale of the Second World War. So we'll have this interwar period, right? Just like in the back in the old day between the First and Second World War, there will be this interwar period between the Second World War and the Russian war in Europe because it's a war in Europe. Everybody's suffering. Ukraine Ambassador Vassil Miroshenchenko, you have done a sterling job at uh, keeping Ukraine in the minds of Australians, ensuring that uh, Russia's illegal war on Ukraine remains a top priority uh, in this region. Good luck with the Crimea Platform Summit. Happy Ukraine Independence Day. And I look forward to having you back on Aspie's podcast, hopefully with positive news not too far into the future. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.